This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, I'm really glad you've joined us. We're going to spend the rest of the time today talking about profanity with someone who knows an awful lot about the subject. We know why languages have ritualized phrases for greetings and terms of endearment, but why do languages also have words that are considered bad or vulgar? And what is it about this colorful part of our lexicon that feels so tied to our humanity? Here to talk with me about all of this is renowned linguist and author John McWhorter, who has a new book out called Nine Nasty Words. John McWhorter, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. So uh, before we get into the book itself, I'm curious why now felt to you like the right time to j- jump into this world and these questions about profanity. Why, why write this book? Well, it wasn't necessarily a right now issue, nor was it that, as it might look like, there is one chapter out of the ten on the N-word, and we've been thinking about that word a lot lately. I, I didn't know that it was going to become such an important <laughs> issue right. when I wrote it. But I just wanted to do a book about language and how language changes and how we use it that would get across some things that linguists think about, but in a way that you know normal people would want to read. And I thought profanity is something that everybody is interested in, mm. and it has all sorts of lessons that it can kind of teach in a stealth way, and it would also just be fun. I wanted to write a book that smiles, and that's what Nine Nasty Words is. Yeah. So so let's talk about Nine Nasty Words. Uh, what are those words, and why are they so powerful in our language? Well, those words are ones that I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say. Yeah, What's don't the, say them, but uh, right. <laughs> give us an it's idea. The words, <laughs> it's the words that are, one, the words that are blasphemous. The ones that I can say are damn and hell, and so it starts there. We all think of those as on the list of profanity words. But then again, if we think about it, those words are now more salty than anything else. We do not go pale to hear a 10-year-old use those particular words. But then they're the words that refer to sex and excretion and the body, the classic four-letter words that, you know, people get slapped for using in certain situations. And then also included in the nasty words are slurs against groups, because the truth is that just like we, we all know intellectually that tomatoes are fruits, but we think of them as vegetables, we don't classify words like the N-word or the word that begins with F that refers to gay men. We don't think of those as curse words. We think of them as something separate called slurs. But the way we process slurs these days, especially over about the past 30 years, means that what is really profane in our language is no longer words about God, Jesus, and the body. Now it's about defaming subgroups of people. Hmm. What's profane is different from what it used to be. So it's a book about everything from damn to the N-word and everything in between. Hmm. And and why has that changed, uh, what, what you were just uh, talking about? What, what, what accounts for that shift? Well, you know, what you can see actually is a shift from a general religious sensibility into something that is quite different and more specific, which is a civic concern with treating all people equally. So you can see it as a kind of moral or intellectual advance. It used to be that the hottest thing you could do is use the God's name in vain. That was something. Then it became not being, you're not allowed to talk about certain private matters because it's considered vulgar, it's considered blasphemous to talk about what comes out of your body, or, you know, people procreating, etc. 
then we move on. And so we're a society where we're much less interested in whether or not we're using God's name in vain or whether or not we can talk about what we do in the bathroom. We're more interested in how we all get along. And so in a way, profanity has evolved in a way that I think we could actually praise. Hmm. Now, here on the ground, things get more confusing, there are excesses, there are abuses, but what's really happened is that what we consider profane has changed as our intellectual and moral development has happened. Hmm. Uh, You also uh, talk about the cognitive and neural science around profanity and how it's stored in a different area of the brain than our other language abilities, something I, I absolutely uh, did not know. Can you, can you talk a little about that? Well, when you erupt with a curse word, it comes from the right side of the brain, which is associated with cruder things such as processing intonation and tone, as opposed to actually putting the words in a sentence together in a very intricate way. Speaking happens on the left side of the brain for most people. That kind of eruption happens on the right side that's more involved with, for example, creativity as opposed to you know, linear reasoning. And so it means that curses begin as words, but they become gestures that just happen to have the form of words, which is why so often cursing doesn't make strict sense. If you say, what the F is that, it would be hard to even say what F is doing in the sentence, what part of speech is it, what mm-hmm. exactly does it mean, and that's because it's not a word. It is an eruption. It's a decoration within a sequence of words and grammar. Which suggests to me that it is maybe more rooted in emotion than the the other other language. Yeah, it's not neutral. It's not vanilla. It's about emotion rather than just making a neutral observation about something. Hmm. I'm talking with uh, John McWhorter. He teaches linguistics, American studies, and music history at Columbia University. He's a contributing editor at The Atlantic and host of Slate's Lexicon Valley uh, podcast. He's also the author of 20 books, including his newest one, Nine Nasty Words. That is what we are talking about right now, Nine Nasty Words, profanity, how we use it, how we have used it over time, how it's changed uh, over time. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Uh, Do you have a question or an observation about the the use of language in your own life? How have the events of the past year made you think about the words we use to talk about this specific moment? Uh, What do you think of buzzwords and phrases like systemic racism, cultural reckoning, or even intersectionality? Do these words help you better articulate the kind of world you want to move forward, or do they make you feel isolated and Confused. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there uh, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, uh, John, I want to talk about the N-word, which has its own chapter here. Uh, uh, Give us a sense of uh, how that word fits into the world of language but also into the world of profanity. It's a little different than other, than other words. Yeah, I mean, we are processing the N-word, especially these days, as, as a taboo word. It's not only that we don't level the slur. That would mean that it was something different from profanity, which mm-hmm. is a slur. But it's at the point where we often prefer not to even use it in reference. So you can't talk about it, and you often don't even want to say words that sound like it. 
so when it's gotten to that point, we realize that this is a new piece of profanity. You profane to use the word or even to, to wield it in any way. And so it's become a very controversial business because we're in the middle of the transition. As recently as 30 years ago, it was a slur, but you could with taste talk about it. You could refer to it. But things have changed since because we are a society increasingly concerned with issues of equality and respect. And so that word has changed in how tolerated it is. Also, the F word that refers to gay men in a dismissive way, Mm -hmm. that word is not bandied about the way it used to. And that's because of sociological changes. But it means that we have basically taken those words, they actually were words, and made them into new examples of what is now treated as as profane. So so I also want to ask you just a little about uh, uh, some of the things you've been talking about on social media um, uh, about words like systemic racism or cultural reckoning or intersectionality. I mean, I know those are not, uh, those are not curse words. They're not profane, mm-hmm. um, but they do have real emotional content. I think, uh, uh similarly uh, to, to uh, some of the words that we're talking about. And you have some real f- strong feelings about how those words have kind of shaped the discussion about inequality that we've had in the last year. Can you share just a little of that with our listeners? Well, I think that um, when it comes to a lot of those terms, language is tricky because what those terms actually mean in practice is different from what the words mean in the dictionary sense. And so, for example, affirmative action. You would never know what affirmative action was from what affirmative and action mean. You have mm-hmm. to know the specifics. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, racial reckoning is tricky because it can sound like what it just means is that we need to acknowledge that racism plays a role in society. But what people who are wielding that term really mean is that we are supposed to put a certain specific conception of anti-racist practice at the center of all intellectual, artistic, and moral endeavor. That's a radical proposition. Maybe it's correct. You know, the society has to um, have a consensus about it, and that happens through dispute and discussion. But racial reckoning doesn't just mean recognizing race. It means something very specific. It can be hard to have a conversation about it where people aren't always clear on the meanings of these things. That's also true of the way we're using the word anti-racism. That is also true of a term like systemic racism, which I think means different things to different people. So we're at a really tough time because certain terms are being used where not only are there disagreements about how society should be run, but we're not always even clear what we're referring to when we use the terms or when we hear them. It's a really, it's a weird time right now. Hmm. Uh, Big Neo on Twitter says, the words just and only are like profanity to me when people use them to minimize the wrong actions they take. That's an interesting uh, observation that that, <laughs> that makes them into uh, curse words uh, to that uh, to that listener. Let's go to Anne in Shelby Township. Anne, welcome to the show. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, I called in because my son, who is a teacher, middle school, um, taught in Michigan, and last August he moved to California teaching middle school. And when he started working there, he found that school he was working for used the term, I don't even know if I could say this, but it's a shortcut for a special education student, mm-hmm. shortcut S-P-E-D, mm-hmm. and the school that he worked for, they used that, and mm-hmm. that's 
what they referred to. And that's how they referred to needs. Yeah. So he was appalled. It's like, you guys say this? <laughs> right. You use this word. And what and was like, their defense? Yes, we do. And of course we do. Everybody does. And he, he was concerned, and he followed up. And it's not a public school. It's a charter school. Um, and they changed their vocabulary. They responded to mm-hmm. it, and he said they, you know, all their memos that they send, all the policies and procedures, they've changed. Hmm. Wow, I, I, mm-hmm. that, that's a remarkable story, and I can't, I can't imagine anyone. And it, thinking that's and okay. it, illust- it illustrates the the temper of the time. In that, fifty years ago, there would have been no movement on that. Whereas today, you can affect change because we think more about labels like that and what they might mean. Hmm. Wow. Uh, Ann, I really appreciate the call and uh, and you sharing that story. Let's go to Dennis in Dearborn. Dennis, what's on your mind? Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Um, you know, the, frustrating, and Steve, I've told you that my family is just divided all over the place, so we argue, argue, argue. And, and a lot of these buzzwords, no, not buzzwords, a lot of the creative words that say something, I find them to be an invitation to go further and say, what do you mean by that? Can you give me the definition? Uh, what, do you, what do you mean by woke? Hmm. And what's bad with it? Why can't I say what's good with it? Uh, I mean, we, over, our, over the century, we've had awakenings all the time, and we use that word. Uh, in my building, I'm in a, uh, this gentleman says in the elevator to me, he says, I think Mr. James Crow has moved into our building. Well, that's a, a new spin on the word, hmm. but it, it says something. It says something. So I see them as an invitation, and I wish we would stop using them as conclusions to beat each other up. Oh, wow. Dennis, that's a really interesting observation. John, what, what do you make of that? Yeah. Well, I think that we have to remember that there is a certain kind of person these days who thinks that, and they don't, they're not going to put it this way, but this whole business with critical race theory is that battling power differentials, and specifically white white power is central to all intellectual, moral, and artistic endeavor. That's supposed to be our main focus. Everything takes a second seat to that. If that is your, if that's your watch cry, then you're not open to discussion beyond a certain point. For you to talk about what woke means and, you know, what wokeness should consist of would be like having a careful discussion as to whether pedophilia is okay. Hmm. There is no discussion. So you have to understand that for people who are of a certain woke perspective, and I would say it's not all woke people, it's a certain kind of hyper-woke person, that that is their basic premise. And when you're having an exchange with people like that, you have to understand that their premise is that and that they're not going to be able to have a discussion with you about whether or not that premise is appropriate. For them, that's just a religious tenet, and you have to go from that. Sometimes, frankly, there's no discussion to be had, because for them, that basic idea is sacrosanct. So, so I mean, that's a really interesting idea, and I think that, you know, it, you, you kind of have your finger on what some of the pushback has looked like. I mean, I think, uh, I think there's some really cynical pushback, of course, to the conversation about inequality and, and, and justice. But but I think that, that to say, why can't we talk about these things and kind of explore those ideas is, I, I don't know, that, that seems like a reasonable one. And what you're saying is that it's become impossible to do that. Yeah, you can't. A person like that doesn't know it, which makes it even harder. But 
they're not open to exploration of that basic idea that, you know, battling power differentials and especially white power has to be central to everything. And so you say, well, why can't you be open to new ideas? But no, they're no more open to new ideas on that than we would be in figuring out whether pedophilia in some aspects is okay. Now, the person doesn't know that. They think they are open to exchange, but their idea of exchange is trying to convince you of the way they think. If you ask them, well, how might you change your view? The only way that they would change their view is what they want to know is what the obstacles are in your mind to understanding things the way they do. That's yeah. as far as you're going to get. And so we really do hit a logjam with people like that because we can't convince them of a new way of thinking. We have to figure out how to work with and around them. And in order to do that, we have to understand what their ideology consists of. Hmm. The book is Nine Nasty Words, and the author is John McWhorter. Uh, we were just talking about profanity and language. Uh, what a wonderful conversation uh, to end the show today. John McWhorter, thank you so much for joining us here thank on you. Detroit Today. All right, that is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow for a conversation with Caleb Gale about historic preservation and the impact it can have on economic opportunity in communities of color. This is 1019 WDET-FM at Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.